Chapter 5.3 of the 9-11 Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. The 9-11 Commission Report, Chapter 5.3 The Hamburg Contingent Although bin Laden, Atef, and KSM initially contemplated using established Al-Qaeda members to execute the plane's operation, the late 1999 arrival in Kandahar of four aspiring jihadists from Germany suddenly presented a more attractive alternative. The Hamburg group shared the anti-U.S. fervor of the other candidates for the operation, but added the enormous advantages of fluency in English and familiarity with life in the West, based on years that each member of the group has spent living in Germany. Not surprisingly, Mohammed Atta, Ramzi bin al-Shib, Marwan al-Shahi, and Zayed Jarrah would all become key players in the 9-11 conspiracy. Mohammed Atta Mohammed Atta was born on September 1, 1968, in Kafr al-Sheikh, Egypt, to a middle-class family headed by his father, an attorney. After graduating from Cairo University with a degree in architectural engineering in 1990, Atta worked as an urban planner in Cairo for a couple of years. In the fall of 1991, he asked a German family he had met in Cairo to help him continue his education in Germany. They suggested he come to Hamburg and invited him to live with them there, at least initially. After completing a course in German, Atta traveled to Germany for the first time in July 1992. He resided briefly in Stuttgart, and then in the fall of 1992 moved to Hamburg to live with his host family. After enrolling at the University of Hamburg, he promptly transferred into the City Engineering and Planning course at the Technical University of Hamburg, Harburg, where he would remain registered as a student until the fall of 1999. He appears to have applied himself fairly seriously to his studies, at least in comparison to his jihadist friends, and actually received his degree shortly before traveling to Afghanistan. In school, Atta came across as very intelligent and reasonably pleasant, with an excellent command of the German language. When Atta arrived in Germany, he appeared religious, but not fanatically so. This would change, especially as his tendency to assert leadership became increasingly pronounced. According to Ben al-Shib, as early as 1995, Atta sought to organize a Muslim student association in Hamburg. In the fall of 1997, he joined a working group at the Quds Mosque in Hamburg, a group designed to bridge the gap between Muslims and Christians. Atta proved a poor bridge, however, because of his abrasive and increasingly dogmatic personality. But among those who shared his beliefs, Atta stood out as the decision-maker. Atta's friends during this period remember him as charismatic, intelligent, and persuasive, albeit intolerant of dissent. In his interactions with other students, Atta voiced virulently anti-Semitic and anti-American opinions, ranging from condemnations of what he described as a global Jewish movement centered in New York City that supposedly controlled the financial world and the media to polemics against governments of the Arab world. 
To him, Saddam Hussein was an American stooge set up to give Washington an excuse to intervene in the Middle East. Within his circle, Atta advocated violent jihad. He reportedly asked one individual close to the group if he was ready to fight for his belief, and dismissed him as too weak for jihad when the person declined. On a visit home to Egypt in 1998, Atta met one of his college friends. According to this friend, Atta had changed a great deal, had grown a beard, and had obviously adopted fundamentalism by that time. Ramzi bin Alshib Ramzi bin Alshib was born on May 1, 1972, in Gail Bawazir, Yemen. There does not seem to be anything remarkable about his family or early background. A friend who knew Ben Alshib in Yemen remembers him as religious but not too religious. From 1987 to 1995, Ben Alshib worked as a clerk for the International Bank of Yemen. He first attempted to leave Yemen in 1995 when he applied for a U.S. visa. After his application was rejected, he went to Germany and applied for asylum under the name Ramzi Omar, claiming to be a Sudanese citizen seeking asylum. While his asylum petition was pending, Ben Alshib lived in Hamburg and associated with individuals from several mosques there. In 1997, after his asylum application was denied, Ben Alshib went home to Yemen but returned to Germany shortly thereafter under his true name, this time registering as a student in Hamburg. Ben Alshib continually had academic problems, failing tests and cutting classes. He was expelled from one school in September 1998. According to Ben Alshib, he and Atta first met at a mosque in Hamburg in 1995. The two men became close friends and became identified with their shared extremist outlook. Like Atta, by the late 1990s, Ben Alshib was decreeing what he perceived to be a Jewish world conspiracy. He proclaimed that the highest duty of every Muslim was to pursue jihad, and that the highest honor was to die during the jihad. Despite his rhetoric, however, Ben Alshib presented a more amiable figure than the austere Atta, and was known within the community as being sociable, extroverted, polite, and adventuresome. In 1998, Ben Alshib and Atta began sharing an apartment in the Harburg section of Hamburg, together with a young student from the United Arab Emirates named Marwan al-Shahi. Marwan al-Shahi Marwan al-Shahi was born on May 9, 1978, in Ras al-Kamah, the United Arab Emirates. His father, who died in 1997, was a prayer leader at the local mosque. After graduating from high school in 1995, Shahi joined the Emirati military and received half a year of basic training before gaining admission to a military scholarship program that would fund his continued study in Germany. Shahi first entered Germany in April 1996. After sharing an apartment in Bonn for two months with three other scholarship students, Shahi moved in with a German family with whom he resided for several months before moving into his own apartment. During this period, he came across as very religious, praying five times a day. Friends also remember him as convivial and a regular guy, wearing Western clothes and occasionally renting cars for trips to Berlin, France, and the Netherlands. 
As a student, Shahi was less than a success. Upon completing a course in German, he enrolled at the University of Bonn in a program for technical, mathematical, and scientific studies. In June 1997, he requested a leave from his studies, citing the need to attend to unspecified problems in his home country. Although the university denied his request, Shahi left anyway, and consequently was compelled to repeat the first semester of his studies. In addition to having academic difficulties at this time, Shahi appeared to become more extreme in the practice of his faith. For example, he specifically avoided restaurants that cooked with or served alcohol. In late 1997, he applied for permission to complete his coursework in Hamburg, a request apparently motivated by his desire to join Atta and Ben al-Shib. Just how and when the three of them first met remains unclear, although they seemed to know each other already when Shahi relocated to Hamburg in early 1998. Atta and Ben al moved into his apartment in April. The transfer to Hamburg did not help Shahi's academic progress. He was directed by the scholarship program administrators at the Emirati Embassy to repeat his second semester starting in August 1998, but back in Bonn. Shahi initially flouted this directive, however, and did not re-enroll at the University of Bonn until the following January, barely passing his course there. By the end of July 1999, he had returned to Hamburg, applying to study shipbuilding at the Technical University, and more significantly, residing once again with Atta and Ben al-Shib in an apartment at 54 Marienstrasse. After Shahi moved in with Atta and Ben al-Shib, his evolution toward Islamic fundamentalism became more pronounced. A fellow Emirati student who came to Hamburg to visit Shahi noticed he no longer lived as comfortably as before. Shahi now occupied an old apartment with a roommate, had no television, and wore inexpensive clothes. When asked why he was living so frugally, Shahi responded that he was living the way the Prophet had lived. Similarly, when someone asked why he and Atta never laughed, Shahi retorted, How can you laugh when people are dying in Palestine? Zayed Jarrah Born on May 11, 1975, in Masra, Lebanon, Zayed Jarrah came from an affluent family and attended private Christian schools. Like Atta, Ben al-Shib, and Shahi, Jarrah aspired to pursue higher education in Germany. In April 1996, he and a cousin enrolled at a junior college in Greifswald in northeastern Germany. There, Jarrah met and became intimate with Eisel Sanguin, the daughter of Turkish immigrants who was preparing to study dentistry. Even with the benefit of hindsight, Jarrah hardly seems a likely candidate for becoming an Islamic extremist. Far from displaying radical beliefs when he first moved to Germany, he arrived with a reputation for knowing where to find the best discos and beaches in Beirut, and in Greifswald was known to enjoy student parties and drinking beer. Although he continued to share an apartment in Greifswald with his cousin, Girard was mostly at Singwin's apartment. Witnesses interviewed by German authorities after 9-11, however, recall that Girard started showing signs of radicalization as early as the end of 1996. After returning from a trip home to Lebanon, Girard started living more strictly according to the Koran. He read brochures in Arabic about jihad, held forth to friends on the subject of holy war, 
and professed disaffection with his previous life and a desire not to leave the world in a natural way. In September 1997, Gerard abruptly switched his intended course of study from dentistry to aircraft engineering at the Technical University of Hamburg-Harburg. His motivation for this decision remains unclear. The rationale he expressed to Singwin, that he had been interested in aviation since playing with toy airplanes as a child, rings somewhat hollow. In any event, Gerard appears already to have had Hamburg contacts by this time, some of whom may have played a role in steering him toward Islamic extremism. Following his move to Hamburg that fall, he began visiting Sanguin in Greifswald on weekends until she moved to the German city of Bochum one year later to enroll in dental school. Around the same time, he began speaking increasingly about religion, and his visits to Sanguin became less and less frequent. He began criticizing her for not being religious enough and for dressing too provocatively. He grew a full beard and started praying regularly. He refused to introduce her to his Hamburg friends because, he told her, they were religious Muslims and her refusal to become more observant embarrassed him. At some point in 1999, Gerard told Singwin that he was planning to wage a jihad because there was no greater honor than to die for Allah. Although Gerard's transformation generated numerous quarrels, their breakups invariably were followed by reconciliation. Forming a Cell In Hamburg, Gerard had a succession of living accommodations, but he apparently never resided with his future co-conspirators. It is not clear how and when he became part of Atta's circle. He became particularly friendly with Ben Alshib after meeting him at the Quds Mosque in Hamburg, which Gerard began attending regularly in late 1997. The worshippers at this mosque featured an outspoken flamboyant Islamist named Muhammad Hader Zamar. A well-known figure in the Muslim community, and to German and U.S. intelligence agencies by the late 1990s, Zamar had fought in Afghanistan and relished any opportunity to extol the virtues of violent jihad. Indeed, a witness has reported hearing Zamar press bin al-Shib to fulfill his duty to wage jihad. Moreover, after 9-11, Zamar reportedly took credit for influencing not just Ben al-Shib, but the rest of the Hamburg group. In 1998, Zamar encouraged them to participate in jihad, and even convinced them to go to Afghanistan. Owing to Zamar's persuasion, or some other source of inspiration, Atta, Ben al-Shib, Shahi, and Jirah eventually prepared themselves to translate their extremist beliefs into action. By late 1999, they were ready to abandon their student lives in Germany in favor of violent jihad. This final stage in their evolution toward embracing Islamist extremism did not entirely escape the notice of the people around them. The foursome became core members of a group of radical Muslims, often hosting sessions at their Marienstrasse apartment that involved extremely anti-American discussions. Meeting three to four times a week, the group became something of a sect whose members, according to one participant in the meetings, tended to deal only with each other. Atta's rent checks for the apartment provide evidence of the importance that the apartment assumed as a center for the group, as he would write on them the notation, Dar al-Ansar, or House of the Followers. In addition to Atta, Ben al-Shib, Jahi, and Jarrah, 
the group included other extremists, some of whom also would attend al-Qaeda training camps, and in some instances would help the 9-11 hijackers as they executed the plot. Saeed Bahaji, son of a Moroccan immigrant, was the only German citizen in the group. Educated in Morocco, Bahaji returned to Germany to study electrical engineering at the Technical University of Hamburg-Harburg. He spent five months in the German army before obtaining a medical discharge and lived with Atta and Ben Al-Shib at 54 Marienstrasse for eight months between November 1998 and July 1999. Described as an insecure follower with no personality and with limited knowledge of Islam, Bahaji nonetheless professed his readiness to engage in violence. Atta and Ben Al-Shib used Bahaji's computer for internet research as evidenced by documents and diskettes seized by German authorities after 9-11. Zakaria Esabar, a Moroccan citizen, moved to Germany in February 1997 and to Hamburg in 1998, where he studied medical technology. Soon after moving to Hamburg, Esabar met Ben Al-Shib and the others through a Turkish mosque. Esabar turned extremist fairly suddenly, probably in 1999, and reportedly pressured one acquaintance with physical force to become more religious, grow a beard, and compel his wife to convert to Islam. Esabar's parents were said to have made repeated but unsuccessful efforts to sway him from this lifestyle. Shortly before the 9-11 attacks, he would travel to Afghanistan to communicate the date for the attacks to the al-Qaeda leadership. Manur el Matasadek Another Moroccan came to Germany in 1993, moving to Hamburg two years later to study electrical engineering at the Technical University. A witness has recalled Matasadek claiming that he would kill his entire family if his religious beliefs demanded it. One of Matasadek's roommates recalls him referring to Hitler as a good man and organizing film sessions that included speeches by bin Laden. Matasadek would help conceal the Hamburg group's trip to Afghanistan in late 1999. Abdelghani Mazudi, also a Moroccan, arrived in Germany in the summer of 1993 after completing university courses in physics and chemistry. Mazudi studied in Dortmund, Bochum, and Munster before moving to Hamburg in 1995. Mazudi described himself as a weak Muslim when he was home in Morocco but much more devout when he was back in Hamburg. In April 1996, Mazudi and Matasadek witnessed the execution of Atta's will. During the course of 1999, Atta and his group became ever more extreme and secretive, speaking only in Arabic to conceal the content of their conversations. When the four core members of the Hamburg cell left Germany to journey to Afghanistan late that year, it seems unlikely that they already knew about the plane's operation. No evidence connects them to al-Qaeda before that time. Witnesses have attested, however, that their pronouncements reflected ample predisposition toward taking some action against the United States. In short, they fit the bill for bin Laden, Atef, and KSM. Going to Afghanistan The available evidence indicates that in 1999, Atta bin al-Shib, Jahi and Jarrah decided to fight in Chechnya against the Russians. According to Ben Al-Shib, a chance meeting on a train in Germany caused the group to travel to Afghanistan instead. 
an individual named Khalid al-Masari approached Ben al-Shib and Shahi, because they were Arabs with beards, Ben al-Shib thinks, and struck up a conversation about jihad in Chechnya. When they later called Masari and expressed interest in going to Chechnya, he told them to contact Abu Masab in Duisburg, Germany. Abu Masab turned out to be Mohamedou al-Slahi, a significant al-Qaeda operative who even then was well known to U.S. and German intelligence, though neither government apparently knew he was operating in Germany in late 1999. When telephoned by Ben al-Shib and Shahi, Slahi reportedly invited these promising recruits to come see him in Duisburg. Ben al-Shib, Shahi, and Jarrah made the trip. When they arrived, Slahi explained that it was difficult to get to Chechnya at that time because many travelers were being detained in Georgia. He recommended they go to Afghanistan instead, where they could train for jihad before traveling onward to Chechnya. Slahi instructed them to obtain Pakistani visas and then return to him for further directions on how to reach Afghanistan. Although Atta did not attend the meeting, he joined in the plan with the other three. After obtaining the necessary visas, they received Slahi's final instructions on how to travel to Karachi and then Quetta, where they were to contact someone named Umar al-Masari at the Taliban office. Following Slahi's advice, Atta and Jarrah left Hamburg during the last week of November 1999, bound for Karachi. Shahi left for Afghanistan around the same time. Ben al-Shib about two weeks later. Ben al-Shib remembers that when he arrived at the Taliban office in Quetta, there was no one named Omar al-Masari. The name apparently was simply a code. A group of Afghans from the office promptly escorted him to Kandahar. There, Ben al-Shib rejoined Atta and Jarrah, who said they already had pledged loyalty to bin Laden and urged him to do the same. They also informed him that Shahi had pledged as well and had already left for the United Arab Emirates to prepare for the mission. Ben al-Shib soon met privately with bin Laden, accepted the al-Qaeda leader's invitation to work under him, and added his own pledge to those of his Hamburg colleagues. By this time, Ben al-Shib claims, he assumed he was volunteering for a martyrdom operation. Atta, Jarrah, and Ben al-Shib then met with Atef, who told them they were about to undertake a highly secret mission. As Ben al-Shib tells it, Atef instructed the three to return to Germany and enroll in flight training. Atta, whom bin Laden chose to lead the group, met with bin Laden several times to receive additional instructions, including a preliminary list of approved targets, the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the U.S. Capitol. The new recruits also learned that an individual named Rabia al-Maki, Nawaf al-Hazmi, would be part of the operation. In retrospect, the speed with which Atta, Jahi, Jarrah, and Ben al-Shib became core members of the 9-11 plot, with Atta designated its operational leader, is remarkable. They had not yet met with KSM when all this occurred. It is clear, then, that Bin Laden and Atef were very much in charge of the operation. That these candidates were selected so quickly, before comprehensive testing in the training camps or in operations, demonstrates that Bin Laden and Atef probably already understood the deficiencies of their initial team, Hazmi and Medar. The new recruits from Germany possessed an ideal combination of technical skill and knowledge that the original 9-11 operatives, veteran fighters though they were, lacked. 
Bin Laden and Atef wasted no time in assigning the Hamburg group to the most ambitious operation yet planned by al-Qaeda. Bin Laden and Atef also plainly judged that Atta was best suited to be the tactical commander of the operation. Such a quick and critical judgment invites speculation about whether they had already taken Atta's measure at some earlier meeting. To be sure, some gaps do appear in the record of Atta's known whereabouts during the preceding years. One such gap is February through March 1998, a period for which there is no evidence of his presence in Germany and when he conceivably could have been in Afghanistan. Yet to date, neither KSM, Ben al-Shib, nor any other al-Qaeda figure interrogated about the 9-11 plot has claimed that Atta or any other member of the Hamburg group traveled to Afghanistan before the trip in late 1999. While the four core Hamburg cell members were in Afghanistan, their associates back in Hamburg handled their affairs so that their trip could be kept secret. Matasadek appears to have done the most. He terminated Shahi's apartment lease, telling the landlord that Shahi had returned to the UAE for family reasons, and used a power of attorney to pay bills from Shahi's bank account. Matasadek also assisted Jarrah, offering to look after Eisel Singwin in Jarrah's absence. Saeed Bahaji attended to similar routine matters for Atta and Ben al-Shib, thereby helping them remain abroad without drawing attention to their absence. Preparing for the Operation In early 2000, Atta, Girard, and Ben al-Shib returned to Hamburg. Girard arrived first on January 31, 2000. According to Ben al-Shib, he and Atta left Kandahar together and proceeded first to Karachi, where they met KSM and were instructed by him on security and on living in the United States. Shahi apparently had already met with KSM before returning to the UAE. Atta returned to Hamburg in late February, and Ben al-Shib arrived shortly thereafter. Shahi's travels took him to the UAE, where he acquired a new passport and a U.S. visa, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and one or more other destinations. Shahi also returned to Germany, possibly sometime in March. After leaving Afghanistan, the hijackers made clear efforts to avoid appearing radical. Once back in Hamburg, they distanced themselves from conspicuous extremists like Zamar, whom they knew attracted unwanted attention from the authorities. They also changed their appearance and behavior. Atta wore Western clothing, shaved his beard, and no longer attended extremist mosques. Girard also no longer wore a full beard, and according to Sengwin, acted much more the way he had when she first met him. And when Shahi, while still in the UAE in January 2000, held a belated wedding celebration, he actually had been married in 1999, a friend of his was surprised to see that he had shaved off his beard and was acting like his old self again. But Girard's apparent efforts to appear less radical did not completely conceal his transformation from his Lebanese family, which grew increasingly concerned about his fanaticism. Soon after Girard returned to Germany, his father asked Girard's cousin, a close companion from boyhood, to intercede. The cousin's ensuing effort to persuade Girard to depart from the path he was taking proved unavailing. Yet Girard clearly differed from the other hijackers in that he maintained much closer contact with his family and continued his intimate relationship with Singwin. These ties may well have caused him to harbor some doubts about going through with the plot, even as late as the summer of 2001, as discussed in Chapter 7. 
After leaving Afghanistan, the four began researching flight schools and aviation training. In early January 2000, Ali Abdul Aziz Ali, a nephew of KSM living in the UAE, who had become an important facilitator in the plot, used Shahi's credit card to order a Boeing 747-400 flight simulator program and a Boeing 767 flight deck video, together with attendant literature. Ali had all these items shipped to his employer's address. Girard soon decided that the schools in Germany were not acceptable and that he would have to learn to fly in the United States. Ben Al-Sheib also researched flight schools in Europe, and in the Netherlands he met a flight school director who recommended flight schools in the United States because they were less expensive and required shorter training periods. In March 2000, Atta emailed 31 different U.S. flight schools on behalf of a small group of men from various Arab countries studying in Germany who, while lacking prior training, were interested in learning to fly in the United States. Atta requested information about the cost of the training, potential financing, and accommodations. Before seeking visas to enter the United States, Atta, Shahi, and Jarrah obtained new passports, each claiming that his old passport had been lost. Presumably they were concerned that the Pakistani visas in their old passports would raise suspicions about possible travel to Afghanistan. Shahi obtained his visa on January 18, 2000, Atta on May 18, and Jarrah on May 25. Ben Al-Sheib's visa request was rejected, however, as were his three subsequent applications. Ben Al-Sheib proved unable to obtain a visa, a victim of the generalized suspicion that visa applicants from Yemen especially young men applying in another country, Ben Al-Sheib first applied in Berlin, might join the ranks of undocumented aliens seeking work in the United States. Before 9-11, security concerns were not a major factor in visa issuance unless the applicant already was on a terrorist watch list, and none of these four men was. Concerns that Ben Al-Sheib intended to immigrate to the United States doomed his chances to participate firsthand in the 9-11 attacks. Although Ben Al-Sheib had to remain behind, he would provide critical assistance from abroad to his co-conspirators. Once again, the need for travel documents dictated Al-Qaeda's plans. Travel It should by now be apparent how significant travel was in the planning undertaken by a terrorist organization as far-flung as Al-Qaeda. The story of the plot includes references to dozens of international trips. Operations required travel as did basic communications and the movement of money. Where electronic communications were regarded as insecure, Al-Qaeda relied even more heavily on couriers. KSM and Abu Zubaydah each played key roles in facilitating travel for Al-Qaeda operatives. In addition, Al-Qaeda had an Office of Passports and Host Country Issues under its Security Committee. The office was located at the Kandahar Airport and was managed by ATEF. The committee altered papers, including passports, visas, and identification cards. Moreover, certain Al-Qaeda members were charged with organizing passport collection schemes to keep the pipeline of fraudulent documents flowing. To this end, Al-Qaeda required jihadists to turn in their passports before going to the front lines in Afghanistan. If they were killed, their passports were recycled for use. The Operational Mission Training Course taught operatives how to forge documents. Certain passport alteration methods, which included substituting photos and erasing and adding travel caches, were also taught. 
Manuals demonstrating the technique for cleaning visas were reportedly circulated among operatives. Mohammed Atta and Zachariah Sabar were reported to have been trained in passport alteration. The purpose of all this training was twofold, to develop an institutional capacity for document forgery and to enable operatives to make necessary adjustments in the field. It was well known, for example, that if a Saudi traveled to Afghanistan via Pakistan, then on his return to Saudi Arabia, his passport, bearing a Pakistani stamp, would be confiscated. So operatives either erased the Pakistani visas from their passports or traveled through Iran, which did not stamp visas directly into passports. End of chapter 5.3 Recording by Leanne Howlett